Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Montreal Canadiens were perfect in overtime in the Stanley Cup playoffs coming into Game 4 versus the Vegas Golden Knights. But now they are 4-1. and one. And what was a reverse of Game 3, it seemed, the Vegas Golden Knights came back and won 2-1 to one in overtime to tie the series at 2. Justin Cuthbert, Julian McKenzie with you on the Yahoo Sports Hockey Podcast. Julian, what's going on, man? I mean, it's been a while since we've talked. A lot has happened here. Uh, we're obviously going to break down Game 4 here. But, like, you know, update me on the circumstances there in Montreal. Like, is it... Uh, has it completely changed as, as it went from positive to now there's some expectations here? We're going to the Stanley Cup final. What's going on over there? Okay. Uh, first things first, uh, I'm bummed personally that uh, the game four result ended up as it did for one reason. Thursday night, game six, uh, now that it's going to be happening, Thursday night was going to be the first game of my outdoor soccer league. Uh, I was supposed to be playing soccer this summer with some homies. And the first game was supposed to be on June 24th, which I will now be preoccupied in covering a hockey game. But I'm not going to complain about that, but I am a little bit bummed that I won't be able to play soccer. That being said, that being said, uh, yeah, the expectations have been completely raised in the last few days with the way this series has gone between these two teams. Even leading into uh, game four, where the Canadians still had that 2-1 series lead, just feeling that positive energy from a lot of fans. It was just really, it was really fun to see. It was just really cool to see a lot of younger fans uh, who have not been this close to seeing their team make the Stanley Cup final. It was really cool to see. And I, I know a lot of them were, were probably just like, you know what, we got to still go up with the series. We have to see what's going to happen with the Golden Knights. And evidently with what happened in game four, the series now tied to two, it's going to go back to Vegas. But if you're a Canadians fan, you just have to enjoy this. Let yourself enjoy this. I know some people don't want to get too superstitious about a few things, but considering everything that's been going on the last year with the pandemic, considering what some other teams are doing right now, like the Toronto Maple Leafs sitting at home, if you're a Montreal Canadiens fan, Enjoy every moment of this because no one gave you any credit and no one thought you were going to be in this position. So I think even after the series being tied at two, I can imagine some fans are still a little bit nervous, but a lot of people are, are, are seeing the Stanley cup in their minds and, and, and they're seeing, they're recognizing how good this team is and how they found their identity over the last few games. And a lot of them are recognizing that, you know what, 
the Montreal Forum ghosts have to be at play here. I mean, that's the only way to explain why they won game three the way that they did. But I also think the hockey gods, uh, they like to swing the pendulum wherever they feel like it. And I also think, as you alluded to, that's probably why the Golden Knights ended up winning game four as they did. Well, a couple of things there, like, uh, you know, it's been, I don't think we've spoken since the series started. Did we, did we break down game one? Oh, I think we, man, it's been, it's been so long, imagine, honestly. Uh, well, things are blurred for me, but they have to be blurring for you with everything that's going on with you. But like, I'm trying to think of what we talked about last and we just talked about how, okay, Montreal got to enjoy this moment, right? You're where they weren't necessarily supposed to be here, but you're having this amazing moment coming out of the pandemic fans, finally getting back into positions where they can, sit on terraces and enjoy and enjoy hockey games. And it's awesome, right? Like everything about it is awesome. But then Montreal got the lead in the series and then things became like, certainly in this game up until about the 10 minute mark of the third period. Oh, we're, we're, uh, we're going to go to the Stanley cup final here. That's exactly how it started to feel. And I think there's reason for that because in the Canadians last two series, there was like a, there was like a moment where you saw something and then it ended up being exactly that throughout with them taking control over the Leafs, them right away seeming to have it against uh, the Winnipeg Jets. And now getting to the point where they're suddenly dominating in this series over, over long stretches here. And certainly for moments of this game, they were, well, for pretty much the entire game, they were the better team. So I think the expectations have certainly changed. Now that it's 2-2, I don't think it should. Certainly the pendulum swinging back in the Vegas Golden Knights' favor here. They now have home ice advantage back. And they got this huge lifeline tonight. But still, Montreal should be like over the moon with what's happening here. We're going to game five of the Stanley Cup semifinals. They have just as good a chance as any to make the Stanley Cup finals. The other series is tied at two as well. I mean, this is all gravy at this point. And what's going on in Montreal is just super cool. And I'm kind of jealous to be in a different province right now. You know what's funny, actually? I think we did actually talk at game one because one thing that I singled out from that opening game of this series was the work of the Vegas Golden Knights defense and the fact that they were able to get goals from guys like Shea Theodore and Nick Holden. If I remember correctly, I think Mm -hmm. every defenseman except one defenseman, Alex Petrangelo, picked up at least one point in that first game. And I'm sure I, I, I raved over the fact that the Golden Knights and the attack that they have they're able to get production from their forwards and from their defense. But through four games, it's been the defense who's been completely carrying this Vegas Golden Knights offense. And that's not something I expected to this point in the series. I think up until Pacioretty assisted on the uh, the game winner from Nicolas Roy, uh, Pacioretty and Mark Stone, I think, had one assist between those two players entering game four. That's not something you expect. Uh, that line of Riley Smith, Jonathan Marcheseau, so, and William Carlson also not necessarily producing as much as the Vegas Golden Knights would like in this series. Yeah, there, there are some guys on the forward side who their offense is lacking it. And let's put it this way. Two forwards for the Vegas Golden Knights have scored goals in this series. And Nicolas Roy has scored two of those three goals from mm-hmm. those forwards, including the overtime winner. I think the Canadians deserve some credit for how they've been able to play the forwards, but I'm also just very surprised at how ineffective the forwards have been for them. And also looping in the storyline of of Robin Leonard starting over Marc-Andre Fleury, how that storyline has kind of taken a seat back to this point. I don't think the Golden Knights are in a position where the goaltending was the issue. I understand Marc-Andre Fleury had the 
the gaff in game three, but he would, I think he was far from the problem for this team. It's everyone else up front. You can't have Alex Petrangelo scoring all of your goals for you. You can't have everyone on defense producing without having guys on offense step up. And sure enough, Nicola Hua stepping up in a clutch moment for the Golden Knights here, but I'm sure the Golden Knights would really appreciate it if some of their more higher profile guys step up. Well, certainly. Um, I, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Montreal is, is you, know, you know, as I mentioned, asserting itself in this series. And I think if we're going to my, t- my main takeaway from the game was that this, is, this was Montreal's best game in the series. Maybe the best game of the entire playoffs. You can jog my memory and maybe pull up a, a, a game that was better. But with the way they played this game, it was like the tides had completely turned. Like, okay, we are now, as I mentioned, considering the Montreal Canadiens as the, not even front runners, just the eventual uh, champions of this series and moving on into the Stanley Cup final. Uh, that's just how it looked. Because as you mentioned, Vegas forwards couldn't do nothing. They were rel- they still are relying on, on Vegas Golden Knights defensemen from getting, for getting the job done. But even that, like there was just nothing that Vegas was producing offensively. And they ended up scoring the overtime goal on the first high danger look that they generated in the entire game. Montreal to that point was up 17 to nothing in high danger looks. And as I'm sitting and watching this dominance from Montreal and this incredible ability to basically take a great team and make them look extremely mediocre, it's not because Chandler Stevenson went out. I mean, we use that excuse with John Tavares. We use that excuse with Mark Shifley probably shouldn't have in retrospect. But just because Chandler Stevenson went down, yeah, it made things more difficult. But guess what? The dynamic hasn't changed. Montreal's fourth line has been better than the Vegas fourth line. Montreal's third line has been better than the than the Vegas third line. Montreal's second line with Caulfield and Suzuki has totally outplayed the misfit line over in Ve- on uh, Montreal's side. And I'm sorry, but no one's outplaying Phil Deneau right now. Just nothing is happening against that line for Montreal. And that is clearly not happening with Mark Stone and Max, Max Pacioretty right now. Like Montreal is just dominating this series now. They were in complete control until they gave up one, I don't want to say fluky goal, they earned it, whatever. They took advantage of the one opportunity they got, and then they did the same in overtime. I, I just think Montreal came into its own for the large part of this game, and the result in the end is pretty unjust by the way they play. And maybe the way that I'm looking at it might be seen as glass half empty, but when you consider the fact that the game eventually ended up going in, go- in uh, Vegas's way, I can't help but think of the chances that Montreal had in game four. You mentioned it with the lead that they had in terms of high danger chances throughout the game. The Montreal Canadiens also started the first period off on a good start. That's not something they did in game three as well. They get a goal from Paul Byron. They get a near second goal from Cole Caulfield on a breakaway, which in a weird way, that big save from Robin Leonard kind of turns the tide of this game. A bit similarly to what happened in game three when when Alex Tuck got denied by Carey Price. Really, game four really was the inverse of game three. But yeah, you can't say the Montreal Canadiens didn't have chances to put this game away. And while it was good on them to generate all those chances that they did, you mentioned the fourth line. In particular, that pressure line was really generating some chances. Even from the get-go, Corey Perry was getting guys in front, uh, a whole bunch of contact in front, but he was still able to create some chances. Montreal, if they really were on it, they could have made this 2-0 or 3-0 in this game and not going to take away from their play because I, I agree with you. I think they were the better team in this contest, but you, you have to wonder what this game would have been like if they buried some of those high-danger chances. 
Oh, you're right. I mean, the reason why, however, it wasn't two nothing or three nothing by the time that Vegas had tied it was because largely because of Robin Leonard. And I think we should probably get in to the decision to start Leonard. You mentioned it a little bit, um, but he made 27 saves for the ver- for his, the victory, his first in the Stanley Cup playoffs so far. You know, last year he was the guy for Vegas, carrying them to the Western Conference Final. Um, and I found myself all day trying to figure out why exactly Pete DeBoer went this route. Obviously there's the context of the infamous Marc-Andre Fleury giveaway where he basically handed the opportunity to Montreal to get themselves in control of the series. And they, they took advantage of that. Um, but, but I don't think it was just that. I don't think you can sit a goaltender, certainly one that played at a Vesna level and has been very, very good in the playoffs, at least up until this third round, I would say. Um, I don't think that's why you took him out. So I've been trying to figure out exactly why. And it was interesting because Joel Edmondson said in the post game that we kind of knew that they were going with Robin Leonard for game four. So I wonder what your read on it was, uh, how you thought about the, what you thought of the decision. And I mean, it's easy to look back and say, Hey, that worked out great because he made 27 saves for the victory and, and really looked at his best. It looked like vintage Robin Leonard, at least from last year when he was the dominant force for Vegas. But, uh, I thought it was a bit of a surprise move and certainly one that paid off for DeBoer. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I, I wouldn't have made that coaching change. I wouldn't have made that change if I repeat DeBoer. I, I still don't think that the goaltending has been the biggest issue for the Vegas Golden Knights. And I understand that Marc-Andre Fleury had that mistake in, in game three, but I think otherwise he's he's been doing just fine. And the spotlight should be more on the guys in front, as I made the point earlier. But I, I just think that with the way Pete DeBeer was probably looking at it, he probably thought, you know what? They uh, probably looked at game four, obviously, just if they don't win that game, being down a 3-1 hole, obviously a pretty tough situation to come back from. And maybe he just felt that having a goaltending change would kind of propel them to to at least get to a point where they could at least get some saves in. And whenever that offense kicks in for Vegas, they're able to capitalize on that, I guess. Maybe that's just it, but... I'd really have a hard time kind of reckoning with why this goaltending change was made. But I have to say, at least from a visual standpoint, at least from what was shown on the broadcast, it seemed as if Marc-Andre Fleury was just trying to be a good teammate to Robin Fleury. He kind of gave him the little pad tap in warm-up. That's the biggest thing I remember in terms of him just providing support. But Marc-Andre Fleury also looked happy at the end of the game as well. I don't get the sense that at this stage of the postseason, Marc-Andre Fleury is sweating the goaltending changed too much as opposed to what we remember from last year's postseason with a certain Photoshop and a sword going through him. That was pretty fun to watch. But I I think at this point uh, with the team being as close as they are to the Stanley cup final, there's not that much time to get into certain pleasantries about who should be starting when you should just be more thinking about, you know, just getting to the final. And I wouldn't be surprised if either at any other point in this series, or if Vegas goes on to win this series and goes to the final, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Marc-Andre Fleury again. I, I think the Golden Knights are pretty confident in both of their goaltenders and playing Robin Leonard the way that they did tonight is, is a pretty good example of that. Well, if you're going to spend over $12 million on goaltending, you probably should use the full extent of that $12 million. And it does make sense in that respect. But I guess my concern was that Robin Leonard looked terrible in the only game he's played. And that was game one after a long series uh, versus the Minnesota Wild. He came in in game one versus the Colorado Avalanche and got absolutely shelled. So I think maybe for that reason, okay, Marc-Andre Fleury may be dealing with some fatigue issues. Maybe that was the reason he went in. Maybe he just thought we have no chance here because of what we just came off of and 
how the Colorado Avalanche were rested and ready to go. That was a brilliant call as well because it saved Marc-Andre Fleury from having to go through that game one and set him up for success for the rest of the series. So this seems like a similarly impressive stroke from DeBoer. Um, and and I, don't, I think you're right. I don't think this is anything that Marc-Andre Fleury is going to sweat. It's possible we see him again. I don't think we see him in game five. I think it's Robin Leonard's uh, ball to run with at this point. But maybe it's just the fact that Marc-Andre Fleury's an older goaltender. He's been playing a ton of hockey, way more hockey than he ever would have over stretches in the regular season where you're, you know, there's no back to, you're not playing every other night in the regular season. And if you were, I guess the schedule was condensed, you'd be playing other goaltenders. Like you'd never have this schedule, certainly for a goaltender of Marc-Andre Fleury's vintage. So uh, I think that's maybe one of the reasons why maybe Edmonton caught up on that somehow, but DeBoer definitely made the right move. And it was the save on Cole Caulfield that you can look back at not the turning point per se, because it's so easy to pick up that and say, yeah, there's a turning point in the game. But I guess it's the turning point in the sense that it could have been over if Cole Caulfield buried that, but Robin Leonard was there to shut the door and he shut the door on just about everyone after, you know, Paul Byron opened the scoring for Montreal on his breakaway goal. So uh, you can't knock the decision. Now I figured a goaltender coming in cold, it might work out poorly in Vegas's favor because what are you going to expect when this guy's not played hockey for so long, but uh, it certainly worked out. Can I get your take on uh, the people who thought that, the decision to announce or not to announce, but to have Robin Leonard in the starters net prior to the game during the practice or whatever. Some people thought that it was just kind of gamesmanship or, or, or Pete DeBeer just kind of like playing around with the situation, even in the media availability right after practice, uh, he would not commit to naming Robin Leonard as the starter. And I think that kind of kickstarted a few uh, a few kind of ideas jogging around people's heads that maybe Peter Beer was kind of playing around the situation and wouldn't commit. I just thought it was a bit ridiculous. That I didn't see the point in, in doing that. Once I saw Robin Leonard was in the starters net, I was like, okay, well, he's the guy. But I, I, yeah. I don't know how other people feel about that. No, I mean, it, I, I guess you could, you can't really put the smoke and mirrors behind. We see that from guys like John Cooper. Just we see that from time to time in the playoffs, right? But the reason why everyone was confident Leonard was going in because he was in the starters net. And yeah. if anyone is superstitious, it's goaltenders. Like if Marc-Andre Fleury was doing anything else than what he normally does, then you know, he's not preparing for a start and he would have been in the starters net because that's his routine. And if you broke his routine, cause you were playing games, then, I mean, you're asking for trouble if you're a head coach. Exactly why I had to ask you that question. It just did not make any sense to me that, especially with the stakes being as high as they were that they would mess around with the psyche of either of their goaltenders. It just didn't make any sense to me. No. Um, despite Vegas winning the game and tying the, the series at two, two, uh, I think their problems are persisting. Like pretty much everything that we've come to question about their prospects of winning a championship, getting by this series, all that just continue to come up. And one of them is the fact that they can't get scoring from anyone, but defensemen or Nick Wah or Matthias Janmark so far in this series, but also because their power play is just wretched, like just terrible. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I don't want to say historically bad, but we're in like the four for 40 something territory in these playoffs. If you go back to April 1st, it's like under 15%. We've been talking about 12% um, for, you know, a very long time over a sample of a hundred power plays. They're firing at what would be close to a league worst uh, mark. So, 
I know. I mean, I've been trying to figure out why it's been so bad. And I think there's reasons for it. I just don't think they have that much firepower up front, but I want to look at it from the Montreal perspective, since I have you, what is Montreal doing so well from a penalty killing perspective against them, but also in these playoffs, because what was it? 24 straight power plays that they killed off um, dating back to previous series. Uh, I think Sportsnet said 26 at one point. 26 at one point. So obviously they're doing something extremely well with these penalty kills. So, so what it is, what is it about that group um, that's made itself a difference maker so far in these playoffs? I think it's just that the way that they've been aggressive in terms of how they've been blocking shooting lanes and whenever they do have a guy, uh, I guess in, in the box that they're in a guy up top, just kind of, again, blocking shooting lanes, just aggressively just on them, just getting rid of pucks. Like I can think of, of Philip Deneau just aggressively swiping at guys. You all are Mia has also stood up in the role as a penalty killer as well. Uh, and even the defensemen, if you see how they are with trying to prevent chances from getting to the front of the net as well. I, I think the way that the Montreal Canadiens have been playing on the penalty kill, they've, they've been particularly aggressive. And what's also been really fun to see from them is that when they are able to take away possessions from teams with the man advantage, they're able to turn that into offense. And if memory still serves, I still think, I still think they have more shorthanded goals than power play goals allowed in this playoffs. Uh, and even on, even if Paul Byron's goal was even strength uh, that came pretty much after their, their penalty kill was over. So I, I think with the way the Montreal Canadiens have been playing they're, they're they've just been aggressive with their defense, with their defending in their own zone on the penalty kill. And they've been able to turn that into offense, whether it's a chance or an actual shorthanded goal going forward. Uh, that's probably been the biggest reason, one of the biggest reasons why they've seen so much success despite being a man down. Yeah, it's hard to connect perfectly, but you're right. Paul Byron's goal tonight came about 10 seconds after the power play ended. And clearly that's not a shorthanded goal. I mean, the full compliments on the ice, but recognizing and having the awareness in that situation to leak out of the zone and take a pass from Nick, Nick Suzuki. Like it's all connected. This game is very fluid. It's connected to what just happened on that penalty kill for sure. And recognizing that they are full strength now and that he can take that chance. I think we should talk about Paul Byron for a second. I mean, this guy is the mm -hmm. breakaway king. It seems like even dating back to like when I remember him with the Calgary Flames years and years ago, that was his thing. He would just find a way to get breakaways and score on them. Can you remember a breakaway in which he didn't make sure the puck hit the back of the net? And what's sort of his success here? Like, I'm sure there was a lot in the regular season because I don't think he scored <laughs> that many goals. And he was getting those breakaways. But it seems like he can't miss right now. And uh, it, and it seems like it's been like that for a long time, at least in the big moments when everybody's watching. Paul Byron, I have to say, I think he's been one of the better stories on this Montreal Canadiens team throughout the year. You're, you're right. There were some moments in the regular season where he did not get goals. I, I don't know his goal totals off the top of my head, but the regular season was very tough. There were some instances where the Canadians were just like, nah, dude, we're putting you on waivers. This is the guy they got off waivers for free. And then they extend him and, and they give him some big, well, relatively big money for a guy playing bottom six minutes pretty much. But this was a guy who, with the salary that he was making and the constraints going off the salary cap in the taxi squad, the Canadians deemed he was the guy to go out on waivers. And nobody took him. And ever since he's he's had those instances going on waivers and he had to stick and he got to stick around with the team, he's made himself more useful and in particularly on offense when he finds himself in open space. Not too many guys are going to catch him. I, I, it's funny. We think of guys like Connor McDavid who are 
I mean, we think of Connor McDavid as arguably maybe the fastest guy in the league, but like one of the few guys who are just as fast, if not faster, is Paul Byron. And he's shown in the postseason if he is going 1v1 with a guy and there's some space around him and, and he's able to turn on the Jets, Paul Byron can win those battles. He did so in that Toronto Maple Leaf series when he took that puck away from Rasmus Sandin. There's the goal he scored, I believe, in game two when Josh Anderson pretty much set a pick, took a defender out of the way, and then Paul Byron was able to take advantage of a broken play. And then the Nick Suzuki play in game four tonight where he's able to get that goal in. And this is a guy who's, who's shown that if you need speed, if you need quickness, he's a guy to have. And at different points throughout his Montreal Canadiens career, I know a little less so this regular season, but he's played the role of unsung hero pretty well. And I think at different points in this postseason, he's continued that. Uh, I kind of understand why he wasn't picked up on waivers. $3.4 million for exactly. another year after this one is quite expensive. Uh, and I was going to say you can't have guys making $3.4 million on your third line and not really scoring goals to be a successful hockey team. But Montreal Canadiens are breaking all the rules, or at least all the the uh, things that I thought were necessary for teams to be successful. So I will just shut my mouth on that one and just let it be because <laughs> Montreal is really breaking conventional wisdom in a lot of senses. Like that's that's exactly what they're doing in these playoffs. And I'm going to get to a couple thoughts that I have just watching the game and watching Montreal dominate at the end of the show. But like mm -hmm. what we thought a successful hockey team needs to be, like Montreal is breaking that norm with paying so much for a goaltender, having a top line center that is not a scorer, like all of these things, having so much tied up in depth, not paying a lot of guys, not having superstars, not having superstar scores, instead having just balance and scoring all throughout the lineup. Like they're they're like zigging while everyone else is zagging. And it's very interesting to see it's, it's uh, it have success because we all get it in our mind what it's supposed to look like. And Montreal is kind of the opposite, which is another thing, I guess, to consider as we reflect here. It's kind of funny, actually, thinking about that and, and, and all the different points where, you know, especially in the regular season where we looked at the composition of this team and we were quick to say that, you know what, maybe the way that they're playing didn't necessarily work. Because sometimes I look, I look at how the defense is structured and Weber and, and Sherratt in particular in game four, they looked really good with the way that they were able to keep guys away from the front of the net. But there are other nights in the regular season where you're just like, man, like this team could use some mobility on defense. I still think they probably could, but it doesn't necessarily seem as if it's a, that much of a problem in mm -hmm. this postseason. I think that I've had moments in the regular season where I looked at a Canadiens game and I would tweet out, if Corey Perry is the team's most dangerous player offensively, there's a good chance the Montreal Canadiens are not going to win that game. I think game four, you could make the argument Corey Perry was the most dangerous player for this team. And I think they probably should have won that game. Had it not, obviously, yep. the OT goal went the way that it did. But I think the Canadians deserve to win game four. So, yeah, you're right. There's been a lot of a lot of rules being broken. And, of course, Carey Price. Carey Price, just with the way that he's been playing and, and the money that he's been making, now everyone's realizing why. I guess it's kind of weird to say when – you know, you look at his salary and everyone's like, yeah, that's why you pay him ten and a half million dollars. Like, that's still a lot for a goalie, right? Considering what other guys are making, but he's making a lot of money. Marc-Andre Fleury is making a lot of money. Uh, has Andre Vasilevsky's contract 
kicked in yet? Because he's supposed to be making a lot of money too. I believe he, it has, yeah. That's why yeah. Kucherov had to go on the shelf. That's what I'm saying. Like it, that. I mean, it's not just the Canadians too. Like you mentioned the fact Philip Deneau being the team's top center, not necessarily a top scorer. I don't know Chandler Stevenson's goal totals off top here, but for Vegas, he's he's supposed to be their number one center, right? Like they don't have like a big game top 20 or top 15 center up front for them either, right? So I don't necessarily, I mean, the Canadians are definitely breaking a lot of rules, but you could look at the Islanders as well. That's another team that doesn't have a superstar necessarily, unless you, I mean, Matthew Barzell, I guess is the closest one you could say, Closer but the to. fact that we but we can, but the fact that it's debatable, I think, is still telling, right? So I don't necessarily think it's just the Montreal Canadiens breaking a lot of rules. I think you could look at each of the teams left in the Stanley Cup playoffs and point to something that they're doing that's kind of bucking the trends that we thought would be the case for a playoff team. I mean, it's surprising and it's unsurprising because I think we talked, you know, we talked at the start of the year, we talked throughout the year about how okay, this isn't this isn't a good regular season team, but like, what did we think about them at the start of the year? Well, I don't want to play them in the playoffs. I don't want to mm-hmm. see Shea Weber and Carey Price and I guess to a lesser extent, Ben Sherratt and Phil Deneau in a playoff series. I just don't. I never, and you always felt that way. And then you watch Shea Weber through the entire regular season. And you're like, well, it probably won't be that bad, will it? But then he's Shea Weber again. He's a mean guy and you don't want to play against him. And he gives up very little. And then Carey Price is like, you know, he's in cruise control the entire regular season. Then he shows up in the playoffs or at an Olympic games or whatever and you know he's going to be the best goaltender in the game. Maybe he wasn't actually in this game. But more often than not, he's going to be the best goaltender. And here's what I mentioned on the last podcast, and it's on you. I want you to carry this through next year. When he okay. has a 909 save percentage in December, <laughs> and guys want and guys and girls want to slam him for being washed up, not worth $10.5 million, let's remember what's happening in these playoffs. It Maybe it's not the best time to talk about it because he wasn't the better goalie tonight. But clearly... His, he is worth $10.5 million in the postseason. He is, he is worth more than your favorite superstar in the postseason because he has more of an influence on the game. I don't think he'll ever be worth it again in the regular season. But when it comes to the playoffs, if Montreal can make it there, you are glad that you paid him all that money. And people should just learn their lesson and not say a word when you want to criticize Carey Price for a bad two-week stretch in November. If he's healthy... He gives the Montreal Canadiens the best chance to win every single night he is there. I am with you on this, and I'm going to say it. There were people throughout this regular season, especially those who were looking at the Montreal Canadiens constantly, fans, all that. They tried so hard to create this goaltending controversy between Carey Price and Jake Allen. And I understand Jake Allen in relief of Carey Price what did an admirable job between the pipes, but Carey Price with the money that's attached to him with the pedigree that he's brought up on himself and the things that he's been able to do at virtually every level of hockey that he's played. I'm sorry. There's no reason why you don't consider him as your guy. And he's showing everyone like, Hey, I'm the guy for a reason. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Certainly. I mean, it was louder than ever, the whispers about him, about, you know, not worth it for Montreal, going to be the reason why they don't win. He's going to be the only reason they win. Not the only reason. He's going to be the primary Biggest reason. If they win and if they continue to win, he has been the primary reason that they've won until this point. Um, but he was beaten tonight, was beaten twice, once by Braden McNabb, and then the second in overtime by Nick Waugh. I think we could just touch on this for a second because it was actually a way better goal that he would probably be given credit for normally. Like a little bit of composure, had time, could have just slammed it into the pads. And we've seen that over and over and over again from Vegas Golden Knights shooters, certainly dating back to last year when they seemed like they got 40 shots every night on Thatcher Demko, but just couldn't couldn't solve them. And I think they sort of wised up in a certain way to it. I think they've realized, hey, we got to be perfect if we're going to be carry price here. So we got to see a lot of shots going high and wide and just missing the net because they're trying to hit corners. They're not trying to just put it where carry price can easily get it. And I think Nick Waugh used a little bit of that principle in that moment in front of the net because, again, he could have slammed into the pads. He could have rushed it, but he took some time and he delicately floated like a chip shot over the uh, over carry price and over. Yes, Barry Kokinami, I think, who was jumping back into the net. So I want to give him credit for what was not like a typical nice goal or a high skill goal, but it really was. I'll say this, like between that goal and I also want to think of the game time goal as well. Just considering where the Golden Knights were able to get these shots off from and, and the traffic that was being built up in front of the net as well. I think that also plays a huge role as to why the Golden Knights were able to get some 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 penetration they were able to get some goals on those plays i think the fact that you know in overtime the golden knights they just said all right we're putting the puck on net and we're just trying to get that greasy garbage goal we've seen it in the playoffs from different teams that you know you could only shoot from distance so long uh and it's just not going to happen for you you have to go to the front of the net you have to get dirty and you have to get your chances there and i think nick rogers put himself in the right place at the right time and when you have Carey Price sprawling on the ground and you just have the top of the net left, like you have to elevate your shot. I don't remember who on Sportsnet made that point that, you know, if you're going to make these shots from distance or whatever, you have to hit the net. And I think someone else had mentioned, you know, if you're in a situation where you're on net, you got to find a way to elevate your shot. But that was a perfect situation for the, for the Golden Knights to just raise that puck and put it in the back of the net there. You could not imagine if Nick Waugh had that puck in the situation and was just firing it at, at Carey Price's chest or his, at his pads. Like, come on. You look at the Golden Knights and say they're snake bitten. You got to raise the buck on Carey Price sometimes. So that, it's good on Nick while he was able to take advantage of that moment. I uh, give him credit for the composure he showed because, like, you know, it's overtime. It's frenetic, and you're just trying to do your best. And if there's a scramble, you try and take your opportunity. But he definitely took the time to make best use of it. I am curious. Was it a plus or a minus for Carey Price from you tonight? You know what's funny, actually? This is one of those games I did not actually put him in either a plus or a minus. Mm -hmm. I would be more inclined to say that 
he would be closer to a plus because I think that he obviously uh, he did as much as he could to keep his team in the game. But I'm with you. I think Robin Leonard outplayed him tonight. I think Robin Leonard had more shots to deal with. He made more incredible saves. And you see it in the end. It ended up being for more of a winning effort. Not to say that Carey Price didn't make any key saves, but I thought he was just okay. I don't think it was necessarily warranting of a minus. I'll say this. There weren't too many people, in my view, because of how the Canadians played, uh, there weren't too many people on the Canadians who were warranting of a minus in particular. I thought even guys like John Merrill, uh, who has gotten a minus from me before, pretty much up until near the end of the game, I thought he played pretty solidly. Uh, I also think it's just too easy to pick on Eric Gustafson at this point, who consistently is the least used defenseman on this team. And if he's not making a mistake, he's not necessarily doing anything on the ice. In fact, uh, I don't know if I should spoil uh, who the only minus of the game was, but we're going to talk about... Okay, it's the officiating. Oh, my God. The the officiating was god-awful. And I know we'll get to it, so I'll save myself for that. But goodness gracious, I'm talking about the referee in here. Bad. Garbage. Terrible. To just put any type of adjective you want, it has just been bad and again i'm going to save myself for when we give ourselves that time to address it why it's been so bad but i felt it was just so bad enough that i couldn't put anyone else in the minus we're there we can address it right now i will say let's I do think it. it's good i think it's good that you haven't boxed yourself in and have to give a plus to, or a minus to every player on the team because that would probably be pretty difficult and yeah you got you got all this stuff on your plate so it's good that you you know picking out the the uh most important nuggets to uh criticize or at least celebrate but it isn't often that I get a text message from you, even when you're busy with other things during the game. Uh, but you were not happy with the officiating, at least in terms of how disorganized it seemed to be. So I'll let you start it off. What's What was your main beef here? What what did you see from Chris Lee in particular, I guess? Usually when you know the referee's name, it's not a good thing. And we learned a referee's name tonight, or at least, you know, learned more and more about his reputation, I guess I should say. Um, but, uh, you know, give, give me your thoughts. Give me your beef. What was what was the main issue for you? What did I see from Chris Lee? That he either can't see or he chooses to, you know, see what he sees, what he wants to see. Because mm-hmm. there were a few instances where he's looking straight up at some plays, at some foolishness going on, and he's not calling anything. And before anyone looks at me and says, oh, well, of course, you Montreal guy, you're only going to point out the stuff where Chris Lee is looking at calls that should have gone Montreal's way. Uh, Joel Edmondson made a brutal cross check on a member of the Golden Knights uh, in one corner of the ice, and that did not get called. And I believe Chris Lee was looking at that as well. So this was a game that was pretty badly officiated. Two power plays. Or at least, what, no, it was the four-on-four, and then the Golden Knights ended up on a power play, and I think the Canadians ended up on a power play a little later on. So, yeah, just not that much in terms of penalties being called. Uh, There was an instance where I think Alex Tuck and Philip Deneau are kind of wrestling with each other, and then Deneau gets thrown down to the ground. There's the Thomas Nosek and Shea Weber back and forth, where Noshek eventually at one point gives a cross check to Weber from behind and then Weber starts retaliating and both of those guys end up in the box. That was the first time all night where the referee said, okay, we have to call something. Right. Mm -hmm. And then before the end of the period, we see Nick Suzuki take a punch to the face 
and nothing gets called. Look, I, I, I understand that in the playoffs, we have built up this reputation where the whistles get put away and not much is going to get called. But the problem that arises from something like that is that when something does get called, it runs the risk of making the referees look inconsistent because from what we've seen in this postseason, not just in that game, but in so many other series, you know, one play could happen and you're like, okay, well, I guess they're going to let that go. And the exact same thing could be called a period or two later. And maybe it's because of the fact that we, 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 we have the Tim Peel thing in the back of our minds here uh, where he was pretty much caught in 4K uh, discussing how he's managing the game. But I can't think of another year where the officiating has gotten so much vitriol and disdain from everyone. And I think it's totally warranted. They've made so many bad calls and so many bad non-calls at different points of the postseason. Like, I, I always think it's bad enough when you're seeing reporters who try their absolute best to be objective hop into yep. the fray and not just people covering the series. You're talking about people who are just in the hockey world. I think when the broadcasts of these games start talking about the officiating, that's also a problem. And you have to remember, this is a game, at least in Canada anyway, that's shown on national television. So a good chunk of the hockey world is focusing on that game. So you know that a whole bunch of people saw a terrible, terrible officiating job from the crew, which were the same crew in game three. And the officiating job in that game was not good as well. It just ended up being a lot worse in game four. In my view, those, the referees, I'm sorry, I don't know the other guy's name along with Chris Lee, but those two guys should not be officiating any other games in this series. As far as I'm concerned, they're not fit to do so because it's very clear they're not going to use the whistles. And when they do, it's coming at some pretty inconsistent moments. I was going to say, it's a good thing that we don't know his name, but it's actually not because he was just as involved as Chris Lee in the management of this game, clearly. And you're right. You make a couple of great points. The fact that Craig Simpson called them out on the broadcast, you don't often hear that from Craig Simpson, who does not go after officials or really anyone with that, uh, you know, with any regularity, really. And him going after them was, was quite a damning uh, indictment on their performance, I think. Although I sort of disagree with him in that, in that case. Because it was, I think he was reacting to Suzuki and, and uh, who would have been? Was it Brady McNabb? Suzuki and McNabb, you're right. So I, I, didn't, I didn't disagree with it because Suzuki's trying to goad him into that punch. Like, it, it, clearly that's what I saw as him trying to get a reaction from McNabb. He got the reaction. It probably should have been called. But the exact same thing happened at the other end five minutes earlier with, as you mentioned, Weber and Noshek. And Noshek got a shot in on Weber hard could have been called, but then we've got two retaliatory blows from Weber to Noshek and nothing called. But I think that's really the issue here is that they wanted to stay out of the game so much that they became part of the game. And I just think it's amazing how often referees fall into this trap. They want to not be a part of it, not call anything and just allow the players to play. But when the players realize this is happening, they start taking liberties and then the game quickly, you know, spirals out of control it happens time and time again and i don't understand how officials can't pick up on that and i guess that's their mandate but it's funny you mentioned tim peel and the smoking gun on the hot mic this was as blatant tonight as anything we've seen including peel in terms of game management they clearly mm -hmm. did not want to call penalties it was only one apiece which naturally it was only one apiece and i guess they called uh weber and Noshek for 
coincidental minors. So we saw a little bit of four on four, but they wanted to see this game played at five on five as much as possible. And there were countless penalties or instances in which they could have called penalties in this game. And they decided not to. And I agree with a lot of the sentiment on Twitter. If you just call penalties by the book all the time and don't wait for those ones that you can't do anything about because the puck went over glass and that's just the rule, then you'll have a better result because players will wisen up just as they do when you're not calling anything. They will wise up to it. They will take less penalties and you'll get what you want, which is a five on five game, but clean and with no one breathing down your neck because of how poor of a job you did. That's all it takes to call it by the book and you will you will get exactly what you're looking for, which is fewer, fewer penalties because the players will react and adapt to it. There is a massive problem with officiating in the sport of hockey, specifically to the NHL. And unless somebody somewhere in the league has a, I don't know what needs to be done, whether it's the, someone from the league talking to the referees and, and whoever represents them and, and hashing things out, or just someone taking a blowtorch to the refereeing union and just building it up from the ground up. I don't know what has to happen. Something just has to happen because it's just been very clear that there is an issue with the way games are being officiated, not just in the, in the, in the playoffs, but in the regular season as well. And it's something that needs to be addressed by the national hockey league or it's going to ultimately affect their product going forward. I, I truly believe that. Yeah, I, can't, I, I do agree. I can't say I don't agree. Um, I do think it's a tough job, but I think they make it tougher. I agree. Like That's, it, I agree. It, it, this, this all happens so quickly and they're trying to react and keep things, you know, I do respect that they try to keep things fair in a certain, to a certain extent, like you can't be calling it one way or another um, and and reacting too far on one side because you're seeing that. Like, I think they make a, a deliberate, they, they choose deliberately, I think, to make it like that because they don't want to be perceived as going towards one side, but sometimes, sometimes the, the game dictates that it goes one side they don't want to call six penalties to zero, even when it's deserved that it's six penalties to one team and zero to the other. I think that's the issue is they want to try and keep things fair, but that the game is not fair. We saw one team totally cave in the other all game tonight. And maybe that would have resulted in more penalties being called one way or the other, but that's just the game. Like you earn more, you earn more possession of the puck. You earn more goals, you earn more chances. You should be able to earn more penalties too. Change the damn refereeing NHL. That's all I have to say on this one. I'm I'm surprised at myself that I didn't get more upset. Maybe it's because it's late, but like I'm sorry. Like this is an absolute joke. It's a joke. The, the refereeing in game four was just so bad, so terrible. Just awful. I'm still upset at the officiating for how they handled that Islanders Tampa game with the 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 penalty on Braden Point where he gets pushed into the net mm. essentially, and the goal and the call gets. Oh my goodness! See like, again, that's another even, one. I, I'm like, oh. that's another one where I I don't I don't think okay I I don't want to slam the referee for that one because you're better than happens, me at this. It happens so fast, right? And usually when a, when a guy runs into or gets pushed in or even runs into a goaltender, they make some lame attempt to move, throw a hand up, try to like dodge a little bit accidentally on purpose. But point went in there so hard that it was like, oh my God, I got to call that. But he only went in so hard because 
he was pushed at an extremely high speed and had no time to move. That's the difference. But like, usually when you go in that heavy, it is a penalty, but it's just Braden point is the exception to most rules in a lot of the way he plays the game. But again, we could go around in circles on this stuff. Uh, but you're right. I think the standards could certainly and should certainly uh, increase just a little bit. Okay. Let me get to my two prevailing thoughts watching this game. And with the context that this was what I was thinking about while Montreal was seemingly cruising to a one, nothing victory over Vegas. Hmm. And the first one is that Vegas was right. Trying to pedal Max Pacioretty in the open market in the summer. Wasn't he? Weren't they like he's, he hasn't shown pretty much anything in this series. And I think you have a better sort of uh, grip on his, you know, performance, his career arc and all that. Uh, you know, it, it, it went downhill a little bit by the time he was out of Montreal. He still scored a ton of goals this year. And it seems like he always scores at least 30 goals. That's just what he does. But he seems very uh, unthreatening in this series. He doesn't look like he has much to offer. And I think Vegas probably recognized this last year that this isn't this is a seven million million dollar player supposed to be a sniper, but he's not a seven million dollar sniper. Well, one thing I'll say about this, uh, it's kind of funny we, we were discussing this particular point because of the fact that uh, I know Pierre LeBron wrote about the uh, is written about the series. Obviously, he's written about the whole Max Pacioretty thing. Uh, and in talking to a few people, I guess, you know, closer to the situation, I guess people at the athletic and who kind of know a little bit more, it seems as if there is a bit of what's the word I want to put in here. There's a word I'm trying to think of. It's not coming to me. I think the, the reports that were going around there about Max Pacioretty possibly being shot in the offseason by the golden Knights. I think there's a cloud above them. I'm not necessarily sure if that was in fact the case. I know they were out there, but I'm not in, in, in talking to a few people about it. I get the sense that maybe it wasn't necessarily the case, but you know what? That's only one side of it here, but I'll, I'll just say that with Pacioretty in this series, I think that you're right. I, I think when he's not able to get any goals in, I already mentioned the fact that up until, I mean, two assists in this series, but for a guy who's basically his main MO is to score goals and produce offensively, uh, that's that's not good enough. I'm sorry. And as opposed to, to other guys, say like a Josh Anderson, for example. Josh Anderson, uh, he made that play in game two. He got the two goals in game three, which were his first goal since game one. You can at least look at other points in the playoffs where uh, he's being imposing, He's using his body. I think he had 10 hits in game four. So that's a guy who could say, you know what? Even if he did not score, he at least tried to do things out there. That's Pacioretty's game is not the type of like a Josh Anderson. He's not a power forward. He's a big guy who's able to score goals if you put the puck on a stick. But he's not a guy who is going to create turnovers necessarily. He's, he's like a hired gun. Like you just need to put the puck on a stick and he should be able to score goals. But the fact that he hasn't been able to do that uh, that's that's very much damaging uh, to the Golden Knights prospects. And it just contributes to the futility from their forwards to this point. So, yeah, I, I think Max Pacioretty has pretty much had a forgettable series. And they're paying him way too much for him to, to, to put on the statistics that he's been putting on to this point. Well, I was looking for something to uh, help validate my argument, but instead I found the opposite. Max Pacioretty leads Vegas with, 
individual expected goals with 1.4, and he's second. This is in the series, second in the entire series to Cole Caulfield, which leads who leads with 1.9 individual expected goals. So it's not an offensive showcase by any means, but I guess in the context or the backdrop of the Vegas Golden Knights, and he's been the most dangerous uh, forward in that sense. But again, it, it just doesn't seem enough to me uh, from him. Certainly like not even worth considering on the power play. It seems right now. And what him and stone are doing at five on five is just simply not enough. I, I would say certainly not for 7 million, but just not enough in the series uh, alone. Uh, I think we're still waiting for that impact. And if he wants to be a positive part of this story, cause it's going to be, the headlines are going to be about him at some point and they have been, and they continue will continue to be. But if Montreal goes ahead and wins this series and patch does nothing, uh, it will be a field day, I assume, in Montreal in terms of, uh, you know, looking back in retrospect at the trade uh, and how it worked out for both parties. But uh, we shall see. Okay, the second one I was thinking about. I, I found watching the series that I have more respect for a team like the Tampa Bay Lightning. Hmm. And, I'll, and, and my reasoning is this. There are tons of cap-strapped teams in the NHL. Vegas is one of them. Tampa is one of them. Toronto is one of them. Montreal is one of them. There's a lot of teams that are dealing with a lot of cap trouble, but there's only one team that is in that cap bind because they have exclusively elite players. And that's Tampa. Like there are problems with Vegas. They're wasteful in certain regards. They have 12 million goaltenders, whatever. There's a, there are a few issues on their roster, but only Tampa Bay literally doesn't have a hole and only has their cap troubles because they have good contracts too. They have a ton of good contracts, but they have so many good players that they just are in this cap bind. So it makes me appreciate Tampa Bay even more for being an elite team with more elite team or more elite players. They can actually fit under the salary cap and deservedly. So a guy like Braden point making under $7 million, all these guys are all elite players. And the only reason why they can't stay together because their management has done such an, an amazing job. The only reason they can't stay together is because they're too good. And the parameters are what they are. You know, that's really great to see that the Tampa Bay Lightning were able to make it work for themselves, even if they did have to put Nikita Kucherov's uh, <laughs> salary on the bend as much as they did, what, $18 million over the cap? That's some real million. fine work by the Tampa Bay Lightning for them to do. You'd think that a guy like Julian Breesbaugh will be up for GM of the year, right? That's what you would think. Oh, wait. No, he's not. They don't like guys that break rules. Even if it's in the rules, I guess. Oh my God! Come if on. you took away eighteen million dollars from the Lightning, I still think they'd be better than eighty percent of the teams in the NHL. I agree. I agree. They're a team that is capable of playing. You know, there are teams that like to go out there and say, "Yeah, we have guys who can go out and play every any style that you want." I think the Tampa Bay Lightning are among the few teams in the National Hockey League that could actually back that up and say they could play virtually any style that you want them to play. And again. Like I've mentioned, I think I've mentioned on this show or some other show, if you are going to go up on a shootout against those guys, you're running up the score, you're going to lose against the Tampa Bay Lightning. They're too front-loaded with the guys that they have who are able to score goals. And I'm with you, man. I, I think the talent that they possess and the way that they've been able to keep everyone together, I, I think Julian Brisebois, the capologist that he is, he deserves a lot more credit for what he's doing. And the people who are saying that he's cheating or he's going above the get above the rules or whatever, they can go kick rocks because it's very hard to be a GM in the National Hockey League. And it's very hard to navigate a salary cap 
especially with the numbers going to be flat for the foreseeable future. I mean, there's not a lot of lee room or leeway for a lot of these general managers to kind of maneuver around that. So I, I think the Tampa Bay Lightning deserves some praise for being able to work with what they have. The reckoning is coming. It's going to, yeah. I mean, unless they pull out a couple more surgeries that are going to last 82 games, like it's going to happen. They're <laughs> going to have to blow things up a little bit, but it's not because they made mistakes. And for every other team, it's because you made mistakes, but for Tampa Bay, it's not because they made mistakes. Um, the Islanders and Lightning are locked at two and they will go and play game five on Monday night in Tampa Bay. Uh, we haven't been covering this game, this series as much as we've been covering Montreal and Vegas. I think I've had you on uh, twice to talk about this and I've kind of mainly had this as my focus um, and kind of losing sight of the Islanders in Tampa just a little bit. So we should talk about it just a touch. I know your, where your focus is. If my focus has been on Montreal and Vegas, Yours has certainly been on Montreal and Vegas, but do you have any thoughts on what's going on now that it's 2-2? It looked like Tampa was sort of asserting their dominance and control of the series, but the Islanders hit back with a game four victory. What's your take on where we're at and where this series is going? Briefly, I'll, I'll keep it brief here because I'm not going to act like I'm an expert on this series. I'll just say these two things. It doesn't surprise me that these two teams have been going back and forth at each other. I know that some people, I know after game one with the way the Islanders won that game, a lot of questions were starting to arise over the way that the Lightning were able to get their goals in. But I can't, but I just think with the offense that they have, it's really tough to keep those guys down that long. The second thing I'll mention about this series, it's basically specific to the way game four ended. What a stop by Ryan Pollock in the dying <laughs> seconds on what could have otherwise been the goal of, of the playoffs from Ryan McDonough. Just absolutely incredible uh, to see the ending of the game go down the way that it did. And now that it's a best of three in that series, I can't wait to see how that's going to end up here. I think whoever we end up getting as a victor from that series they may very well go into the Stanley Cup final as the favorite. Let's be real here. I think the way the Vegas Golden Knights, even if they find a way to pull out a series victory here over the Montreal Canadiens tied 2-2, I don't know if they're beating the Tampa Bay Lightning, and I don't know if they're beating the New York Islanders, as, as mm -hmm. ridiculous as that might sound to some people. But I, I think the Vegas Golden Knights, if they win this series, they go in as an underdog. I think the Canadians will go in as an underdog, but I – more inclined to give them like a series win over whoever they face because they've if they make the final they'll have killed off a significant number of giants on their way to reaching that stanley cup final but let's not go too far i'll just say that uh with the way the islanders and the lightning are playing i think it's pretty clear they should be favored in the final well i appreciate you not bsing me with a very detailed overview when you know your detail is is uh, dedicated to what's happening in Montreal and, and with the Vegas Golden Knights. So I appreciate that. I tend to agree with you. It, it seems like, you know, the, the Islanders are a little outmatched in this series, but the Islanders are the Islanders and they just hang around and they wait for you to make mistakes. And when you make them, they're going to find a way to swing the advantages in their favor just a little bit. And that recipe has worked out so that they're even through four games and have a chance in a best of three series now against Tampa Bay. It's a hallmark of Barry Trott's teams is to even the playing field. And they continue to do that even into the, uh, the back half or the back nine of this NHL semifinal series. Moving forward, we're uh, under a week here before we know 
who's going to be in the Stanley Cup final. Both series are past their halfway mark. Uh, we don't know how this Montreal Vegas series is going to end up, but it is, I think, exceeded our expectations so far with it being 2-2 and going back to Vegas. So there's a really good chance we get a game seven. If there's a game seven, I'm hoping you can come back on and we can talk about it after that. Oh, yeah. Dude, like whenever you want me on, dude, like I, it's Justin Cuthbert here. I will always have time for Justin Cuthbert. There's one other thing I'll mention as well. Uh, okay. The fact that the Montreal Canadiens uh, in this series with Vegas, they have not been completely outclassed. The fact that they have a fighting chance in this, I know we kind of touched off on it at the beginning of the podcast. It's it's mm-hmm. it's really incredible just to see and just it subverted a lot of our expectations on how we view teams in the playoffs, but it's a damn good story to see the Montreal Canadiens kind of against many odds. I don't want to want to say all odds, but against many odds, they've shown that they are able to win series with the team that they have, but also hold their own against a team that, you know, in particular you and I would see as a team that could win the Stanley cup this year. Uh, so yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that game goes seven, but while I did at the beginning, say that uh, I was a bit bummed at the fact that game six would be happening, uh, which pretty much kind of messes up all of my soccer plans. Game six uh, is happening on Saint-Jean-Baptiste Day here in Quebec. So that's a day off for everybody here. So uh, I imagine a lot of, and the game's at the Bell Center as well. So I imagine that a lot of people in Montreal, uh, a lot of their plans are going to be surrounded around the game six Thursday night in Montreal. It would be very amazing if the Canadians find themselves in a position where they could eliminate the Golden Knights in game six and they do so. It's going to be crazy, bro. It's going to be insane. (laughs) It's going to be crazy. We've seen how people have gotten outside in the streets downtown game six going to the Stanley Cup final. I swear to God, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be insane. Well, there's been this level of like, oh, it's in the stars here for the Canadians, right? Like all these things are happening. And we mentioned, uh, what, what was it for? Was it game five? Were we talking about them just forcing a game five? Um, no, it was a game six, forcing a game yeah. six so that all the patios and terraces would open. Terraces, I can't say it. All that would open and they had to have one night where everything would be celebratory and how that turned into a first round series upset over Toronto. And what happened with Winnipeg and now a holiday with potentially Montreal having the chance to move on to the the Stanley Cup final. Like all these things are happening that it seems like cosmic forces at play. Everything seems to be working, you know, beyond our control, spirits in control. And maybe we're just, you know, setting ourselves up for a holiday Thursday, Wednesday. Yeah, Thursday, 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 holiday Thursday, a holiday Thursday Uh, for game six, where Montrealers are celebrating the Canadians going to the Stanley Cup final. That would be really cool and very fitting of what's been a sort of cosmic run that they've been on. Justin, if you were a Montreal native, if you lived in Montreal, uh, I would presume at some point you would say it feels a little bit like 1993. That's the very popular Mm. saying to say because uh, of how that was the last time the Canadians won the Stanley Cup. And I think that team, uh, it seems as if it was pretty unlikely that uh, they would get to the, that point that they ended up being at as well. Someone put up like a really fun like graphic on Twitter at how like both 93 teams, both teams from 93 and this present team kind of compare. Uh, they both 
ups. Like one of the funniest things that they point out is that they both had their goaltenders wink at someone on the opposing team at some point in the playoffs, uh, among some other key series wins that they've had and other notable things. I mean, we the Canadians seem to be stacking up all these overtime wins, which is also something that that '93 team did as well. So yeah, it's it's really funny to see how these uh, these cosmic forces are at play. Those Montreal Forum ghosts. They're, they're, they're very much in play here. And I'll say, I will say this, because I mentioned that it's all not all serendipitous elements. The, these Montreal Canadians, I'm done making excuses for. They are full mm-hmm. value on being here. They didn't lose. They didn't win the first round just because John Tavares was out. They didn't win the second round just because Mark Shifley was out. And they're not 2-2 just because Chandler Stevenson is out. They are going toe-to-toe with one of the best teams in the league and making them for long stretches here look like a very mediocre team and that's because the Montreal Canadiens are in fact a good team and I think you know our read initially may be right our you know read in the middle of the regular season may be a little bit off but uh, I think they're shutting a lot of people up and a lot of people have to come around and admit that this is in fact a good team. I think I'm ready to call it they're the best team I've seen in my lifetime. There you go we come full circle on that take and I'm glad that has worked out for you. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> I'm glad it's worked out for me too. I'm, I'm happy I could say that uh, this take was right. There you go. Uh, let's leave it there. Montreal will continue to ponder this series this week and we'll get after it at some point near the end of the week when this is all said and done. If it's not game seven, then maybe it'll be on the weekend and we can catch up then, but we'll figure out when the best time to recap or immediately react to what could be an incredible game seven with the chance to go to the Stanley cup final. And then I'll try and filter in some analysis here before we get to that point here on the Yahoo sports hockey podcast, Julian, thanks for coming on again. Hey, thanks for having me, man. And, and dude, literally like any time, man, like I, I, I get, I know I've been on Steve Dangles like stream or whatever, but like, I, I still got love for the Yahoo sports hockey podcast. I'm not exclusive like that. You know what I'm saying? So Peace. No, we need, I will say, we need the trifecta. You on with Dangle, then you write for the athletic, then you come on with me. And then like, that's like the greatest shift in Montreal (laughs) Canadiens sports media history. We'll call it that. And we'll leave it there. We'll see you, man. Peace. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 